0: Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to organic gardening expert Barbara Pleasant, author of many, many garden articles and books, including the Gardener's Bug Book, the Gardener's Weed Book, the Complete Houseplant Survival Manual, and she has won a silver award from the Garden Writers Association for her regular column in Mother Earth News. And if you follow us on Facebook, you'll see that I very often will link to one of Barbara's columns on on something that's pertinent to our discussion Oh, what's going on in the garden for you? Welcome, Barbara. Good morning. I'm so happy to be with you. We have known each other kind of off and on for, golly, probably 20 years, isn't it? I hope so. It, it, <laughs> seems, it seems to have gone back that far. I know um, we're both members of the Garden Writers Association, and my membership is 1988. Mine was probably 1992 originally. Oh. You see, so it was probably we were mixing about visiting gardens somewhere, um, and and that may have been it. Long, long time ago, there was a meeting in Mobile, which was my hometown. I think it was the first Garden Writers meeting I went to. I didn't get to that one, but <laughs> I, I do remember. I do remember that when I talked to you the first time, you were living in Alabama, and we mm-hmm. were talking about soils. And since then, now you were you grew up in. Louisiana, did you? You No, I grew up in Mobile, down on the Gulf Coast, and then lived most of my adult life in the Huntsville, Alabama area, which is Uh Zone 7 in North Alabama. So I was there for 20 years, and and then I've kind of migrated, and now I'm in the mountains of Southwest Virginia. Is that that the closest, the coldest um, part of the world that you've lived in? Yes. (laughs) You know, I did not see snow until I was 10 years old. Wow. And, and I did not see real raspberries until I was 10 years old. We were visiting my aunt in Iowa, and the red raspberries were ripe. And I thought, this was heaven on earth. You oh, know? it is. The Midwest red raspberries. <laughs> my grandmother had a patch out in between the two driveways. You know, they had a big, long, curved driveway on their farm. One driveway went to, to the barn, and then it curved around to the house, and then exited, and that whole center patch was full of red raspberries. I know, and it was just amazing. It was just amazing. Miracle. Never... And see, now I live where I can grow not just red raspberries. I'm, I'm a collector. I have like three different kinds right now. Um, <laughs> the winter took one away. We, we had a record cold this winter, and but I still have, you know, the the native black raspberries here in the mountains, mm-hmm. the ones with the grayish bark, and it turns kind of purpley in the spring. They're easy to identify. I have found that this time of year, if you top back the new canes at about six feet, it's like transforming um, them from, you know, uh, they, overnight, they turn from being a wild thing into a domesticated berry because they put out so many laterals. And in, in this area, they all survive winter, and, and you get heavy production off these real lush bushes. I wonder if they would do down here in Georgia, from <sighs> north of Atlanta, kind of in the foothold hills. And I love black raspberries, too, because we grew them up in New Jersey. Well, they grew themselves up in New Jersey. Yeah, and I I have some black caps that my sister in law brought down when she moved here, but they are very small and seedy, and I don't know whether that's because they, um, they need more winter chill or whether she just grabbed a, you know, when she was digging, she just got one that wasn't very productive. Well, you know, if you were going to try them again, I would put them in the shade
1: mm-hmm. because.
0: They really like these um, marginal areas. Uh, for example, we have a really nice chicken house, and there was a dead, a big dead pine tree close enough that the top might have injured our beautiful chicken house. And so we had the dead tree topped and left the trunk, you know, 30 mm-hmm. feet tall. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting off topic. We're not even talking. <laughs> about it. We're talking. Oh, we're talking be fruits be talking. and vegetables. That's what. That's what we're but talking about. anyway, the so, raspberries love growing in this little filtered shade glen um, around this dead tree. It's the they're the biggest in the three or four plots around our property. Is in this little partially partially shaded woodland type setting. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> so what else are you growing besides raspberries? I'm sure you're growing some other fruits. <clears throat> well, right now we're picking blueberries. Um every other morning at least. It's it's the, it's like a Buddhist practice, you know. Uh, before it gets too hot, before you have to start your work day. <laughs> You have soggy feet from being out picking uh, the blueberries. Mm-hmm. We pick about 10 gallons and freeze them, and then we just let the birds have the rest. And um, But we're able to grow northern highbush blueberries, and these plants are about 15 years old. So they're in their prime and will remain so. But, you know, I said I was from Mobile, so my brother down there has a beautiful stand of rabid blueberries. And we compared, we did taste tests and all this stuff when I was commuting back and forth. My mom needed some extra time. And they're just as good, you know. But I, I, don't, I don't know. I think that, to, to my taste anyway, I think the northern highbush blueberries are a little bit more blueberry-y if that can be a word, um, more intensely flavored, even though they tend to be smaller than the rabbit eyes. Well, no, the ones in in our garden are very large. And, and in fact, the bushes are a little bit lank. And part of this is because I should explain that our vegetable garden is tiered into a hillside. We're in the mountains at 2,600 feet. And, you know, the more you improve soil, the more neutral it becomes. Mm -hmm. And I think because the blueberries are downhill of a main garden section that's constantly improved and constantly enriched with organic fertilizers and constantly mulched, and in other words, it's constantly being nudged to probably be around 6'2", 6'4", something like that, you know, because unimproved soil here has a pH right around 5. It's a rhododendron thicket. <laughs> very familiar with that, yes. Very familiar so, that. so I think that there is pH pressure coming down the hill, if that makes sense, and that the blueberries are constantly even though we're in a, an acid soil situation because of what's happening uphill and what's coming down every time it rains hard. It, we keep them in sawdust mulch and never get near I don't use any kind of lime in that side of the garden, but I think they're under pH stress. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could be. And and the difference in size may also be because we didn't grow blueberries when I lived up north, but we would pick them, and, you know, Mm -hmm. of course, they were out in the semi-woodland area, you know, cuts around, new road cuts and things like that. Right. And, and of course, they hadn't gotten fertilized or anything, so that may be the difference. I don't know. I think it is. I I think it's fertility, because I used to live in Pisgah Forest, North Carolina, and people, there were national forests, just went on for miles and miles, and you mm-hmm. had to hike to the high blueberry fields, but people did. They tied milk cartons onto their belts and and hiked to these high balds that were just covered with wild blueberries, and uh, I didn't have to do that, but... I would if I had to. <laughs> in my younger <laughs> days, I used to hike up there, and if I was lucky, I would be there when the blueberries were ripe. Most of the time, of course, I wasn't because, you know, timing is everything. But um, So you're growing raspberries and blueberries. Do you do any tree fruits like apples, or do you think that they're too much of a pain in the neck? Well, they are just kind of like unruly puppies that, <laughs> that never grow up. This is kind of my take on the apple trees. We have three. And um, we have uh, uh, the disease-resistant apples from Purdue and Cornell. For the early apple, we have Williams Pride. It's a big standard. That thing is 40 feet tall. And then the next apple that ripens is Enterprise, which... Um, All of these have scab resistance and, fortunately, some fire blight resistance because we're just coming out of an epidemic of our own making. And then we have a Liberty apple but She and I, we're just, we haven't quite figured out how to dance, and we're working on it. And then, but I have a Potomac pear, which is a danju-type pear, and we have two Asian pears. One that's an excellent eating pair and the other one that we just kind of keep as a pollinizer. And that's it know. on the tree fruits. Dum-da-bum. We gave up the grapes and we took out the plum. Plums have a really hard time of it. If the curculio doesn't get it, the black knot will well this the, the one we had the Stanley plum that did not ripen until August and that just left so much time for it to get sick and to have problems now a friend of mine here has some spring bearing I call them spring or summer plums for example the ones that are bred at Auburn they're gonna bear in midsummer and I think hers are just ripening you know just now well she she gets, she gets pleasing, pleasing crops from those little trees. So I think the earliness or finding the earliest tree that fits your climate, the earliest ripening tree. Might be maybe the only way you're gonna grow organic plums. And organic is the heart of the matter. There's no point in in growing fruit for yourself if you're going to be out there spraying nasty pesticides. Do you use anything on your trees at all, like lime sulfur or anything like that? No, we should. We we depend on pruning and and nature. And I love putting out the little fruit fly, the apple maggot traps that are um, sticky traps that look like apples. Uh Uh-huh, the little red ones. Yeah, Yeah, no, a a real apple grower would only use that for monitoring purposes to see what's in the apple trees. (laughs) Well, there's a lot in the apple trees. But just having those, the the enterprise invites trouble. It's not a, I don't know, the apple, she needs help. (laughs) And so I think I have four hanging in the enterprise, and they are like, Almost black. Oh my. So, do you, do you think enter, there's something about enterprise that makes it an apple magnet? Mag, magnet? I do. I do. I do. It. Um, if if it receives no protection, um, I don't know how many perfect apples out of a thousand. Ten. <laughs> oh dear. But um, with this level, and and here's the thing. Each apple, and I suppose each pear too, has its ideal way to be preserved. And that particular apple wants to just jump into the pot and become applesauce. <laughs> it, it just falls apart as soon as you heat it, you know. Like, and you don't even need a food mill. You, it just becomes applesauce. And um, so you're kind of pairing them anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you have some bad spots. It doesn't matter. I, th- I think that people who are dreaming of fruits or just planting fruits, one thing to bear in mind is as the owner of the fruit tree, you get to keep all of the bad ones. <laughs> and if you're going to share your stuff, of course you're going to share the good stuff. So everybody thinks, oh, look at those beautiful apples. You Because other people, they don't really know what to know make of an apple maggot, you know, which is a a tunnel-y thing in the apple. Now, if you're the owner of an apple tree that's organically managed, you just cut it away and compost it. And then, you know, the bigger problem is you have to either, I, I directly bury a lot of the fruit waste in the fall, just put it right in the garden. (laughs) Because We have to to take a little break right now, but we'll talk more about apple maggots and maybe some more pleasant subjects right after this. Okay.
1: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is organic gardening expert Barbara Pleasant and we were ta- just talking about an unpleasant subject and that is apple maggots. And mm-hmm. Barbara you use you use the sticky traps, the spheres well, the red I things. Would not- I need to point out, and then maybe we can talk about something that doesn't have many problems like blueberries, but um, these traps do come with a pheromone lure. So it's not just, oh, look, it looks like an apple. I think I'll go (laughs) hurl myself onto the sticky stuff. They're they're attracted to the lure, to the uh, fake sticky apple by a scent that it, it just attaches to the top of the apple with a little twisty thing. And, um, boy, it, it seems to work. Now, is it, would it be helpful to use those downwind of your trees like we did for Japanese beetles, like it was recommended? I don't before think so, say, but, boy, we are having is. Japanese beetle year here this year. They're on everything. Um, I don't think so. The instructions are to hang them 18 inches inside the canopy. Hmm. And it does make sense that if your psychology is to attract these their flies is the parent of the pest you're trying to control. Mm-hmm. And you know they've got those big compound eyes. And so I got kind of excited when I started envisioning, ooh, what does this look like to one of these <laughs> flies? Wow. They're gonna say, Oh, it's July, it's August, this is great and go go to they do? Well, you know those red apple traps, um, or not apple traps, but the apple-looking things, apparently are good for people that have deer problems, too. I have a couple of friends that were constantly getting their apples get, get torn apart by the deer. I mean, deer would just eat them down to nubs. And so they had some apple traps, apple maggot traps, and they hung those on the tree really, really early in spring. And mm-hmm. when the deer bit them, Apparently, the deer did not like the sensation of plastic breaking in their mouth, mm-hmm. and they started avoiding them. I don't, I don't know if it would work to, for everybody, but... Yeah, I've hung some lookalikes. If you have an open container of Tangle Trap or other sticky material, um, you can't leave it just sitting around your house, or t- terrible accidents can happen. You know, if you get it on your hands, you have to get it off with oil. It's not. Plus, mm-hmm. and so, but um, I had these little redwood discs left from an abandoned craft project, and I hung those up, and they get no attention, you know. Except they may be deterring the deer. Um, the deer get to be a, are getting to be a problem, but that happens. The the early apple trees started throwing fruit on the ground this week. It's the green... um, Green, June drop, yep. And it's beyond the June drop because the ripening time for this particular tree is first week of August. Um, So it's just, you know, immature, immature. I I suppose if you were gathering every bit, you might collect some of those and just render pectin from them. If you wanted to do natural pectin, I think that those um, early green apples are... Really high-impact. You would think they would pretty much have to be. Because I remember we would always put a green apple in um, if we were making apple jelly. Yeah. Oh, really? I had never thought yeah. of putting some out and mixing them like that. Yeah, we yeah, so You and I are both, yeah, we're both picking blueberries right now. Yep. Blueberries, I think, are about the easiest thing to grow. They don't Before bite again. you when you go to prune them. And yeah. they are mostly pest-free, though occasionally we're we're getting some pests now, and, and of course you can get mummy berry if you don't keep things clean. But mostly the birds take care of the cleanup afterwards, so they'll even... Well, what eat, eat type are you the growing there north of Atlanta? Are, are you growing rabbit eyes, or...? I have some rabbit uh, My first planting was rabbit eyes, and that was in 1981, and they're, they're kind of going downhill now. And mm-hmm. And the other the newer ones that I have are hybrids. I've got a northern hybrid, I think. One is one is cross across a between a northern and a rabbit eye. And I've got a couple yeah, of it's, just it's regular a northern ones. They are called the southern highbush, bush. yeah. Know, We've got yeah, the southern I highbush. Um, I you do. Yeah. And I'm yeah, that's relatively new. I planted that about 3 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I also have just a regular northern blueberry bush that, of course, does not like clay soil. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's struggling, and I really should dig it up and put it back in the container I had it in for a long time. But when my dad started needing a lot of care, I wasn't (laughs) able to keep up with the container. So I just figured, well, live or die, you know, and I planted it in the ground because because I had to take daddy to the doctor all the time. I understand I've been there but you know this does bring up something about our line of work that other people may not understand and that is in addition to having a desk and a computer you know and a, and a garden and a kitchen you have to have what we call a driveway nursery where I call it purgatory <laughs> Now, it's the driveway nursery. And you come to terms with it, you know, because you go to these plant conferences. You go to garden tours. You know, when I'm at these master gardener conferences in the spring, I'm often invited to speak. And each, you know, town will have some independent, either a native plant nursery or, mm-hmm. a, or an herb greenhouse or something mm-hmm. like that with their display of plants. And, but I'm driving on this trip. I can take home as much as I want. <laughs> you know. and, you know, and then I have a rule. I had to come up with a rule because otherwise it just gets all out of hand. I can't buy more plants until I've already situated the ones I have. I was sticking to that rule pretty well until I went to a hydrangea conference. And Penny McHenry was there and Mike Durr was there. And it was... Right next to one of the great big hydrangea nurseries here in Georgia. And I came home with forty one gallon plants crammed into my you little know, little Honda. Don't you remember though, I, I don't remember it, but when I first came into garden writing well, you know, when you've been in this thirty years, you have to I'll have to say that there was a while when Nobody wanted to talk about organic vegetable gardening. Nobody wanted to talk about organics at all. And, you know, I kept financially afloat by writing articles for Better Homes and Gardens on how to landscape your pool. And back then, hydrangeas were considered gauche. They had had been blacklisted until the natives brought them back in. And even then, when the the, uh, new hydrangeas, the oak leaf hydrangeas, started taking horticulture by storm, that's what made it possible to bring the showy hydrangeas back in.
1: Even the lace
0: caps had been demonized. Nobody wants (laughs) those. Well, but but I grew up with them, so I had to have them. My mother had one that she would baby and Daddy would put a... um, uh, burlap thing around it to protect it from the wind and yeah, yeah, all, yeah, all of that stuff and then of course they moved south in 75 and there, there were hydrangeas in the yard so I, I just have to have them and then when we bought this house there were a couple of hydrangeas by the corner uh-huh Well, I I helped look after a little landscape here in Floyd. I guess you call it commercial. It's the Floyd Eco Village. And I did not put them in, but somebody put in blue hydrangeas up against the building. See, I'm in Zone 6. They're really... (laughs) It's chancy. We we went to 6 below this winter. And I want you to know those suckers are in full bloom. That does not surprise me at all. Um... You know, the only thing that's wrong with a hydrangea is it doesn't have fruit on it. But you can dry them if you catch them at the right point and hang them. They make wonderful dried material. Yeah, and if you want to get really complicated, like I've done on occasion, you can use silica gel, too. But now let's talk about, We we just touch briefly on soil. What is your soil like there? Is now, it, unimproved, it, it, it really is, clay? Or? Yeah, it's clay. It's clay, but it has a whole lot of really ground-up granite. You know, like it's sparkly. And, uh-huh. and the rock the rock that we're on is granite. And so um, it's a strange, um, minerally imbalanced, I suppose. I'm not a chemist, and I don't um, generally embrace... These philosophies some people have that you you need to mineral and minerally balance and enrich your soil with this or that. We have some green sand that gets thrown about from time to time, and I compost constantly. Um, And but anyway, uh, I I think soils like mine do respond. Though (laughs) there's a a a German guy here that grows or. He's not all organic, but he's uh, a big believer in minerals, and that's like all he uses to grow blueberries, um, currants, and raspberries. And what they're kind of what kind of minerals are? You oh, it's becoming? technical. You know, it's it, it gets technical, and and this is the problem with minerals. But I do think that this. Granite, red clay, whatever it is, it responds dramatically to organic matter. Um, I visited a garden recently, another hillside garden like mine, and they dug out the rock, the big rocks and put um, wood chips on it. They did not understand then that you don't do that, but they did. And three years later, they have gorgeous soil. You know, oh, it, wasn't yeah. <laughs> it wasn't much for gardening at first, and now the wood chips are gone. And that yeah. what I'm saying is uh, as leading up to my my other point. I think this soil has a good appetite for woody material. Um, if people disappeared tomorrow, the woods would take over in five years. You know, all these openings in the woods would be gone. <laughs> I, I think you're right. It, well, and, and it nature knows. D- yeah. uh, it, knows how yeah, that woody material. So, yeah. I frequently, when we moved here, you know, we were on sheer clay. It this particular part of the yard, um, which is most of it, was cottoned for many years, and then, of course, mm-hmm. it grew up in pine trees, and it was just. Terrible, terrible stuff. So I would run down to Atlanta right on the day before trash pickup, when everybody yard men had put out the you know the leaves and stuff for disposal, and I would get grass clippings for my dad. And whenever the power truck company truck was around, I would beg for a load of wood chips, and mm-hmm. that's how I improved my soil. And yeah, we have a sawmill nearby, and we can get you know different everything from sawdust. To, you know bark shavings, and we've used it all. And I keep coming back to sawdust. I think it's my favorite material. <laughs> I used to use a lot of hay as mulch. What do you use as mulch now? Well, that's a problem. I very often now. I if I need extra mulch, I will use wheat straw because it's less likely to have been contaminated with persistent herbicides. But, Dream on. Uh, you know, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always wary of that, too. And I make sure I'll plant a few, you know, lettuce or bean seeds in it to start with or make a little slurry of it just to make sure that it isn't. It, We're going to have to take a little break... Yeah, i have to take a little break right now. But when we come back, let's talk a little bit about what we need to be doing in the garden. A lot of people are harvesting their spring crops and want to know what they can plant now. We'll be right back after this.
1: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My guest today is organic gardening expert Barbara Pleasant. And Barbara, what, a lot of people right now are wondering what whether they can still plant anything. I know a lot of people well, in the you Midwest. Know, it has, yeah, depends a on lot where people, you are. Where? Yes. A lot of people, you know, have had terribly wet, wet, horrible summers so far. And a lot of people had cold, wet springs. and But there's still a lot of things that some people can plant, isn't there? Well, yeah, and then there's the fact that some things are just going to mature when they will. I just, this past week or so, pulled out garlic, and yesterday pulled out one type of onion, and then another type should have done better. But this is in the nature of onions, to be moody. Um And so the the question comes up, what are you going to do? And you you can never go wrong throwing a handful of buckwheat seeds on the ground. Right. And then that that buys you time. And sometimes I'll do a thin sowing of buckwheat when I know I'm going to be planting something, but I don't know what. And if it turns out to be something set out as a seedling, I can just pull out a hole in the buckwheat and put the seedling in. Uh, For example, if it were a kohlrabi. I've done that. And the buckwheat around it shelters it and shades it in August when it needs it. And it's kind of cool. I like doing that. This is a really good tip. I've used buckwheat as a cover crop before, but I've never planted into it. Well, you know, the great thing about uh, buckwheat is you can pull it out with one one finger. You know, it just just comes right out. And... um, See, so, it's great for the bees, too. The bees just love the stuff. I think it's a lovely plant. I really, it's a weird little plant. But in the meantime, because you don't know what the weather's going to be, and sometimes I find it easier to raise seedlings on the deck under an umbrella than pushing my luck and putting them out in the garden. But see where I am? Um, I just put out Brussels sprouts last week in the row vacated by the garlic. And... Mm, I also had ready-to-go, oh, I know, the deer came and ate the chard, and so that created an opportunity, Um, and I have seedlings of winter squash ready to pop into the ground. I'm surprised that you're doing Brussels sprouts so early. No, I've experimented with planting dates. I started with June 21. Nope, that was too late. <laughs> I moved it back. And now I'm to June 1 as a seed hmm. starting date. And and But they're under a cover. Um, they're under a row cover. So more and more things just to be on the safe side. I put them under a little row cover tunnel. Actually, this is not row cover. I... There's a a cool fabric store here in Floyd, Virginia, where I live, called Schoolhouse Fabrics. It's in the old schoolhouse. And the whole basement, what used to be the cafeteria, is formal fabrics. There's a whole wall of tulle, Mm T-U-L-L-E. And so, so I poked around until I found the cheapest, widest wedding fabric and bought 12 yards of it. Well, it's, it's pretty. well. It, it's, well, it only costs a dollar seventy-five a yard. Hmm. And 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 so it's prettier than row cover. <laughs> Anything is prettier look, than well, row it, cover. It, Even that. Well. of instead of bandages, it looks like formal wear. <laughs> I, one of my gardening forum staffers lives in California, and she has problems with the birds eating her stuff, and she also went out to the fabric store and bought some tulle and then made these cute little dressy, um, they, they look like they're ready for a wedding. But you know you don't even have to do that because good old clothespins, you know, like wooden clothespins mm-hmm. and tool, you can do anything. You can gather it up and smoosh it and pop it with a clothespin and But here's a new use. I haven't tried it. I'm passing it on. As as the lady was cutting the fabric for me, um last week, I she said, Oh, I know, I was paying for it and I said, I don't need a bag, it's just going out in the garden. <laughs> And she said, I know. The town wouldn't let us put an electric fence around our garden, so we just got a whole bunch of something like this and strung <laughs> it up around the sides. <laughs> so they have put up a, call it a sheet fence of mm-hmm. fabric. I see how it would work because you can hide things from deer if they can't see it. They don't eat it. So if you just put an enclosure around a bed so that it's visually hidden, it's open at the top. So they could go eat it, but they won't. Well, it and, and if and if it's if they bump into it, they tend to walk around, even if they're used to going on that path. That's helpful, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Deer, deer are creatures of habit, very much so. So well, you know, you're, yeah. You put out your you put out your Brussels sprouts. What else are you planting? Is it too late for you to plant? You, you mentioned winter squash. And yeah, it see it's, we uh, where I am, we're we're right at that turning point where if you want anything falls into the warm season group, better get it going. Um, and the last ones are going to be beans of various types, bush beans and um I I think I have three kinds of beans going. of course, the deer like those. They don't like squash, and so the temptation is to to plant a whole lot. But as it is, um, it's the one thing, the one vegetable we didn't eat everything of last year. But then I also discovered zucchini relish, Mm -hmm. um, which turns out to be just the most wonderful thing. Um, You know, we think we need to have cucumbers to make pickles. Um, which cucumbers are great, and, and I'm making some today. But um, g- just uh, what y- grating the zucchini and mm-hmm. making it like it's sweet relish. Of course, I followed a published recipe and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. it's got sugar and it's got vinegar and you know it's got all the safe stuff. But because zucchini are so productive, you know it was great. Wow, and we liked it. it you know we ate it all up. I used to make tons of that, and then there was also a zucchini, uh, zucchini pineapple. You turn the zucchini into something that tasted like pineapple, and I would try to find that recipe and and get it up (laughs) here Because it was great, and, and, and like the pickles, it was great, especially for those zucchini that turn into clubs overnight you know yeah, if yeah, you, yeah. if you're busy one day if you're under a deadline and you don't get out there or it's too hot or it's raining and you you don't you had missed it the day before because it was so well hidden and now boom all of a sudden you've got this baseball bat you know one thing i have found is that we do use up the dry zucchini I dry it to leathery so it's not really dry chips. When I blanch it first to tenderize it and set the nutrients and then dry it until it's, you know, leathery and then put that in the freezer. Now, we eat all of that, but it's the frozen squash that I, I need to do less of because it 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 it's just watery. Frozen squash is just too watery. Though, if you uh, put the container in a sieve, when you saw it out, that helps a lot. And then you can use the zucchini water to water your plants. So not all the Well, now that's a good idea. I think the ones we did eat, I ended up, um, when you have a lot, <laughs> I just put it in like the biggest baking pan I had and put a bunch of interesting spices on it and, and just baked it and then drained it and froze it. And that turned out pretty good. Well, that's a, that's a good tip for people. Now, do you not have um, squash vine borers there? Well, I don't know. Um, I have had them in the past, and usually we would have them by now. And I was just looking closely at the squash this morning. I have um, a mix of hybrids and open pollinators because... One of those things I have found, for example, with good old yellow crookneck open-pollinated is that once it sets that first crop, assuming it makes it through the squash borers, it does a second wind, it starts throwing Mm -hmm. out usually two new stems. And so, you know, you and I have been doing this a long time, so we know to watch for these things, and okay, this is it, and if we get a soaking rain this afternoon... And we escaped the boars. We're set. And, when, you know, people want to take sides on that whole hybrid versus open pollinated question. And there is a place for everything, is my belief. I think my garden's about 50-50 at this point. But that's, that's one of my OPs I like. But I think one of the zucchinis may be having a, a squash bore. But... Um, The chickens range in the same area as the squash, and the chickens are not interested in squash whatsoever. Um, Really? But it it may help just the general by balance. I'm not seeing any squash, but early I handpicked maybe a half dozen squash bugs and haven't seen the first egg cluster yet. So I wonder if um, between the hard winter and the chickens, I only have a flock of five, you know five laying hens they for example, they I have grass clipping mulch under my peppers. The peppers are doing great, but they continually go and scratch up the mulch. you yep. so know are they doing harm or good? I don't know. <laughs> I figure the extra fertilization there is fine, and I just it, when my chickens would free range, I would just kick the mulch back underneath, and I'd say, well, the, the mulch is well aerated. <laughs> what i don't like is when the chickens get into my tomatoes and i guess because you know years ago when i first started having chickens i would toss all the extra um zucchini and stuff like that to them and cucumbers so i think that has been passed on from generation to generation and my chickens will eat squash no, oh, they will eat squash and cucumbers. Yeah. But now, the moment a tomato starts turning color, they are on it. So yep. <laughs> yep. I have to keep them away from from the low set. So, Well, and how do you do that? Do you pe- pen them in or do you pen in your vegetables? I pen in the vegetables. Um, uh, there's this stuff that I get at the local feed store. It's a... It looks like chicken wire, but it's made out of polyester, so it's plastic chicken wire. And I can, you know, enclose a 20-by-35-foot section of garden in 10 minutes. Um, and it, Because if they just walk up to it and see it in front of their eyes, they don't go in there. And uh, it also keeps the dogs from accidentally charging across areas. <laughs> It's very important, especially when you have large hounds. We, a lot of people in my area have groundhog issues, and I I can't afford to flirt with that kind of disaster. And so, you know, I try to plan things around the dogs, you know, and they know which ways they're supposed to go and things like that. And I use these little cages. um, Okay. If you took a piece of wire fencing and it's six feet long and five feet wide and you just laid it on the ground, so now you've got a rectangle, Mm -hmm. and you cut two slits in opposite ends so that you're making it into a box, the same way a box would be cut, and then you can fold those, now you have three flaps on each end, and you can fold those in. And now you're forming a box and and holds it in place with uh, nylon zip ties. Do and you have a box. picture of that? I'm sure our <laughs> yeah. listeners would love to see that. If you can email that to me, I I'll will. Put it up it's on in the no, so that you can see. But you know, you have an old piece of fencing laying around. You can do this. Sure, and you can. Put and it I, up and with I do. One hand. And it so caught, we- and it weighs less than five pounds. And so something newly planted, I don't want rabbits, I don't want chickens, I don't want dogs, I don't want deer, just leave my new bed alone, gets one of these cages on top. <laughs> <laughs> right We now have to take a little it. break right now, but we'll be right back after this.
1: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to organic gardening expert Barbara Pleasant. And right before the break, she was telling us about the enclosures she makes to keep her new plants from being eaten. And she's going to send me a picture, and I will put it up on our Facebook page. And I'd like to remind you that if you haven't been following us on Facebook, I look all the time for little extra tips for you to help you make your garden better. Okay, so we've talked about pests in the garden. Do you have any particular—I pe- mean, other than the deer and the groundhogs? You said you don't have squash fine borer yet. And no, I wish no, I could no, so say I'm, that. And we, and let the, we let the uh, dogs kind of have a little bit more freedom. It's in—they're fenced, and and so mm-hmm. no ground—no groundhog is allowed inside my. F- <laughs> <laughs> but the Japanese beetles are bad this year. Really, I've Japanese. seen one. And I credit that to a couple of things. One, of course, is that Japanese beetles like to uh, lay their eggs in moist soil in sunny areas. And our yard has gotten quite a bit shadier. And the other is, when we first moved here, and the Japanese beetles finally came, it was one of the first years we, we after we moved here, the Japanese beetles made it down from the mid-Atlantic down to Georgia. And I bought Milky Spore for everybody in the neighborhood. It cost me a whole oh, bunch. Oh, how nice of you. Well, I didn't, you know, they would ask me, knowing you know that I was on the radio, um, they would ask me what to do about it. And... And, or what they were. That was the first question because nobody here had seen them. And so I just suggested we do that, and I, I got the milky spore, and that really cut it down. You could tell after that first year. The other thing that helped, in some years, we're just coming off, well, the last two years have been rainy, as is this year. But before that, we had a seven-year drought. And uh-huh. that killed off a lot of the beetles themselves because they, they couldn't lay their eggs or if the eggs were laid. And my neighbors were all on wells, so we didn't water. And people in the subdivisions with the automatic sprinkler systems that were spending fortunes to keep their lawns green, I don't know why, but um, they were having, still having lots of Japanese beetle problems. Mm, okay. So that's a couple of strategies for them. I'm surprised that you have them because you're mostly in the woods, aren't you? We're an opening in the woods. And uh-huh. um, interestingly, we, sh- we should have problems with uh, brown marmorated stink bugs in the garden, you know, the new pest. And uh-huh. they're horrible in the house all winter long. It's just Ehh! the stink bugs. But I have yet to see one. Damaging anything in my oh, you lucky you! I had them. They moved in here, I think, last year or the year before. And while they're not in epic proportions like they were for one of my other garden forum staffers, she was in Maryland, and a couple of years ago, it, they damaged everything. And they were on the apples, the her soft fruits like the raspberries. Blueberries. I grow sunflowers. I grow many more sunflowers than I should. I, they grow themselves. It's a question of how many do you allow to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they're supposed to be a good indicator of if, if you know, the beetles did decide to forsake the, uh, we're in a mixed poplar forest. And I think there's, they must be, you know, they are pedial suckers if they have their, uh, preference. That's what they want. They want to suck on that little um, piece of tissue that attaches the stem to the uh, leaf. The, it's a part of the leaf. You know what I'm talking about, but I'm trying to describe it for other people. <laughs> <laughs> and so my theory is that they get up in the poplar trees. and Because, and, you know, there's a list of like 300 plants that they can feed on. Uh-huh uh uh-huh. I was just reading an article about them, and they've discovered that in the woods they prefer um red bud and wild cherries and well, we have a lot of wild cherries, so that could be a host yeah, cherry, and they use that for their staging I'm glad you you I'm glad you haven't seen them in the garden. we've got them in the garden, and the other day I saw stink bug on my raspberry, but he dropped too fast for me to tell whether it was brown marmorated or, you know, one of the kind of normal stink bugs yeah, that we've always had. Yeah, right. Um, and I will right. put up posters, so, uh, pictures on our Facebook page to let people know what uh, what they look like, because they're very... So another, another plant that's supposed to be useful is to put like a purple millet in a pot, and apparently if... See, I, I think that having sentinel plants um, is important, so you'll know if they're there. Because then you could use row covers to protect tomatoes, you know, or, or something. You could you could do something. Another thing, and I know that they're going we're gonna run out of time, so I have to mention this. Um, when they are, when the stink bugs are actively feeding on a flower, and they love cleome. So if you wanted to be strategic, you would plant some Cleome in a distant part of your yard. And then when they start feeding on it, if you pop a trap there, you will catch them. But if they're on your tomatoes, you know, there's a study from the University of Maryland saying you'll make damage worse by putting a trap anywhere near your vegetable garden. Sure. Well, I remember we were talking talking about Japanese beetles a little while back, but I remember a client that called me because she was in the middle of the woods. There was no reason why she should have Japanese beetles, Um, but she had some roses in in the sunny spot in her yard, and what she had done was she put a Japanese beetle trap (laughs) right next to her roses, and of course, every... Every beetle in the world could smell it and came running through the woods to get to hers, And that that was the only bunch of Japanese beetles that I saw any place in that neighborhood, except in the very first yard that was all open. It was one of the last Mm -hmm. houses built right on the corner, and it was all open. And she had the Japanese beetles. It was in tons of them. She had already gotten an entire trash can full of them. Wow, that's a lot. You know, I'm a a member of a crazy little garden group, and we're trying to monitor any monarchs that we see because their population. Mm -hmm. They used to be common here during the summer, but now we see them as fall migrants, and there are very few summer colonies. Um, And anyway, so I was in this natural area on the Blue Ridge Parkway checking the milkweed to see if there were any caterpillars on any Mm -hmm. of it. I could not believe how many Japanese beetles were in this you know native oh, plant wow. herb, just dining away on the milkweed, not the oh. not the leaves they were eating they were in the flowers and uh, doing mm. you know the sex party rock and roll thing they do, but yes. um, <laughs> everybody that you know you're eat. you're not supposed to eat and fornicate at the same time. <laughs> The Japanese Beatles don't know that, well, but we've only got about five minutes left, so I want to make sure that people know where you are, where your books are, where your award winning blog is, and all that kind of good stuff. Oh, thank you so much. I stay busy all my books um all my good books are with story um, publishing and it's a, it's a wonderful publisher, and they're widely available on amazon and hopefully in your favorite bookstore. Let's try to keep those retail bookstores in business. Yes. <laughs> and then I blog every two weeks at um, which is a garden planning software company, but it's also an international conversation in vegetable gardening because it's about half Americans and the other half are Europeans uh, from Great Britain, France, Spain. and um, <clears throat> It's a, it's a kind of, you get interesting um, things going there. The, I have an old blog there, Time to Make Homemade Pickles, and I think it ran right about this time of year. And it has like 90 comments, and and you get to see wow. the magic. The magic of pickles comes alive in the comments thread. <laughs> and I work for Mother Earth News and Mother Earth Living and speak at the four... Mother Earth News Fairs annually, and that gives me a great chance to meet people and uh, learn more about what's working for them in terms of organic gardening and food preservation and some of the other things that I love. And you get to meet cool people that garden. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, you yeah. know, it kind of, I don't like. Long distance traveling too much. You know, I gave up the West Coast one. Although I love visiting the West Coast, but it's so energy intensive that mm-hmm. I kind of stick. Besides, horticultural expertise only translates um, so far geographically. And with the mother of new spares. I'll use we, even though I don't help plan the things. But I think that there's a group mentality of all of us that have been involved from the beginning. Is You want everybody who comes to the fair to leave with a hundred new things that mm-hmm. they didn't know they were going to learn. And so the more really focused information for that region that you can provide is, is better. So so i assume you were at the mother earth news fair in asheville but didn't get out to the west coast one that was what just last week no i did not it's in june it's in um oregon now it used to be in washington and so the next one coming up is north of milwaukee wisconsin it's the first time ever in that region in the upper midwest and it, it, uh, James Duft, who runs that stuff for, for Ogden Publications for Mother Earth News Fair, he's from Wisconsin, and I have said, you know, the people in the Upper Midwest are just really hands-on in terms of empowering their communities, you know, and and um, you know, developing local food economies. And I think they would really show up. And I think we're going to be slammed. You said north of mil uh, North of Milwaukee. Where north of Milwaukee? Um, it, it, there's a small town, I think, called West Bend, and um, this is a facility. It's I think it's called the Washington County Fairgrounds Facility. Most people in that area are familiar with it. So it's driving distance from Chicago, and I think it's – but, but uh, you know, mostly, maybe you've had this observation, too – you get out in the country, in the uh, Midwest, upper Midwest, and you're going to encounter some really empowering local communities. You really will. My dad and, is from a community like that, and, and up until just a year or so before his death, we, I would take him to visit his sister that still lives there. and. Mm-hmm. It's it's just amazing what they accomplish in these little towns. I, I'm completely blown right. away by it. See, I, I live in one, and, and I'm part of two community groups, and it's a time commitment. If you're going to live in a dynamic town like everybody else wants to live in, you get it, you work for it. You know, it doesn't come for free. But that's been a way of life in, in the region we're talking about. And, and it, it hasn't been in the South. You know, you kind of a follower mentality down here. But they kind of said, wait a minute, we're going to make, we're going to live the way we think we should. You know, and I, I'm really looking forward to it. We're well, good. And is there one more this year? We mentioned. Oh, there's That's two more. One. There's two then more. There, Then there's the original site, which is at the Seven Springs Ski Resort in Western Pennsylvania. That's south of Pittsburgh, about an hour south of Pittsburgh. And you know, this is that was the original fair site, and it's turned into an institution. Some families rent; they have cottages and chalets, in addition to motel rooms. They'll they'll turn it into a family reunion thing. I think and that's and go to the fair during the day and, and hang out. That's great. We're almost out of time. I want to let everybody know that I will put this stuff up on Facebook for you, and I'll link to Barbara's um, v- blogs and one of the Amazon links to, to her pages of books. And, Barbara, it's been a lot of fun, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Okay, I'm going to send you the picture of the cage, too. That will be wonderful. Thank you for listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. We'll be back talking more gardening next week, and I hope you'll join us. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio.
1: Thank you for listening.